Class can be dismissed. Can you, there's some people that have come in. Can you make sure? If you don't have a handout for today, will you please raise your hand and Mr. Kyle will give you, there's two pieces of paper you should be receiving, two separate pieces of paper. So one of the pieces of paper is an atonement for last week's laziness. Several people after the lesson said, why didn't you give us a handout for this? And so I'm giving you a handout for last week's lesson. And so that one is the one at the top that just simply says covenant theology. And so that's the handout for last week. And I think the substance of what most people were asking for were the definitions and the breakdown of the individual covenants that we deal with in covenant theology. And so for you younger folks that are normally in Mr. Bogus's class, I want to give just a very brief review of what we were looking at last week, uh, and then we'll get into new stuff for this week. But we're dealing with what we call covenant theology. How many of you in Mr. Bogus's class have ever even heard of such a thing? Raise your hand if you've ever even heard of it. How many of you in Mr. Bogus's class have ever heard the word dispensationalism? You've never heard that word? You people need to pay attention more. <laughs> Pastor Kimbrough uses that word like every week is an exaggeration. Three times a month? Okay, so you've heard that word. Maybe you don't know what it means. And so one of the reasons, what I talked to everybody else last week about was the fact that one of the reasons we're talking about this subject of covenant theology is, I'm talking to you younger folks now, we're doing a series of Sunday school lessons in this class called What Does It Mean? And there's a lot of things that we talk about at church often, and we all pretend like we know what it means, but I think there's a lot of things that we talk about sometimes that some people really don't know what it means. And I think sometimes we can be too embarrassed to admit that we don't know what it means because, one, we think we're supposed to know what it means, and two, we think everybody else knows what it means, and because everybody else knows what it means, I'm the only one that doesn't know what it means, and so I'm too embarrassed and I'm too afraid to ask, hey, what does that mean? So we're trying to deal with some of those kinds of things because it is very important to know what it means. There's no sense in talking about stuff if we don't even know what we're talking about. And so I want to try to address a lot of those kinds of things in our class. And so we're coming to this one of covenant theology. And so for you younger folks that say you have never heard that word before, I'll say it again, covenant theology. So now you've heard it like 10 times already this morning. So just remember, you have heard of it before. So now what in the world does it mean? Well, a covenant, to give a very, very, very brief definition of a covenant, a covenant is simply an agreement between two people. So if two people are talking about something and they're trying to come to an agreement, when they decide on what they're going to do, there's a sense in which they've made a covenant. So I'll illustrate it 
for you younger folks this way. When your mom and dad bought a house, they, if they're super rich, they just paid for the house and they're done. But I don't know of anybody here that's gone all that way with it. But you go to a bank and you say, I want to buy this house. And the house is, let's just make up a number, $300,000. And you tell the bank, I don't have $300,000. All I have is $30,000. I have a 10% down payment. And so you give the bank the $30,000. And the bank says, okay, you can have the house. You can move into it. You can live in it. You can pretend like it's your house. And we promise not to take it away from you as long as every month you give us $1,500. And you say, okay, every month I'll give you $1,500, and I promise to give you $1,500, and you promise not to come take my house away. And we come to an agreement. But the bank says, if you don't give me the $1,500, well, then you're going to have a punishment. And if you don't do it again, you're going to have a bigger punishment. And if you don't do it again, you'll have a bigger punishment. And if there's six months that you don't pay me the $1,500, then we're going to come take your house away. And that's called a foreclosure, right? So this isn't a real estate lesson. This is a Bible lesson. But this is the illustration, right? It's take your house away. And so there, with a covenant, there always have to be parties to a covenant. So two people. There have to be promises, you can have the house, and we promise not to take it away. There has to be a condition. If you don't do this, then we will take it away. And then that's the punishment. Take your house away. Okay, so um, if you look at the notes that I gave you for covenant theology, you'll see um, eventually down on the page. Um, let me get to my notes here. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. I don't have the notes for the covenant theology one. I think it's on the second page. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, and so you see I put in parentheses there the word parties. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. So here's the promise. You can eat of all these trees except for this one tree, but all these trees are available for you to eat of. There's the promise. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, here's the condition. If you eat of that tree I told you not to eat from, here's the penalty. Thou shalt surely die. And so we see in those verses what we call the covenant of works. Now, those, that covenant of works was a covenant that God made with Adam, but it wasn't only Adam. Now, when God made that covenant, Adam was the only human being on the earth. Eve had not been created yet. Adam was all alone on planet Earth, only with all the animals, just Adam by himself. And God made this covenant. And so Adam represented all of humanity. Adam represented Eve, even though Eve had not been created yet. Adam represented Cain. He represented Abel. He represented Seth. He represented Noah and Abraham and everybody, and me and you. Adam represented everybody because Adam was the only one. And God made this covenant, and the, the, the basics of it was, if you do this, then you'll live. 
live forever because he was perfect. But if you break this covenant, if you break this agreement, then you'll die. And so there were works that Adam had to do to accomplish that covenant. So what did Adam do? Did Adam obey or did Adam disobey? Does everybody know the answer to this? Adam disobeyed, right? So Adam ate of the forbidden fruit. And so that was the first sin. And so he broke the covenant. And so now what was the punishment? The punishment was thou shalt surely die. Well, God, before he ever made that covenant with Adam, had already made a covenant with his son, with Jesus. That covenant, if you look on your notes, number two, is called the covenant of mercy. Now, that covenant of mercy was made with Christ before time began, before creation even. God made that covenant. Now, after the fall, God put that covenant in place. And we see that covenant revealed in two different ways. And so that's why in your notes you see an A and a B. So the A is what we call the covenant of redemption. That is how God has shown us the covenant that's inside the Trinity. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all are part of this covenant of redemption. But then there's also what we call the covenant of grace. And that's what God communicated to mankind. And in the covenant of grace, that's where he made a promise that he was going to send his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now that's John 3.16. But the, the substance of that covenant is where I want us to start today in the book of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So everybody please turn to Genesis 3.15. This is really the substance of what we call the covenant of grace. And so to, to finish up the review part of it, especially for you younger ones that weren't here last week, when we talk about covenant theology, is what we're talking about is how God has dealt with humanity. And God has dealt with humanity through two individuals. He's dealt with all of humanity either in Adam or in Christ. Those are the only two. Now, there's a sense in which God does deal with me individually. There's a sense in which God deals with you individually. You have to be saved. You have to believe the gospel. You have to repent of your sins. Your mom and dad can't repent of your sins for you. Your, your grandma and grandpa can't repent of your sins for you. Your mom and dad can't believe the gospel for you. You have to do this on your own. But what we're talking about here is at the day of judgment, when you stand before God, you're either in Adam, and there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 15 that says, in Adam, all die. And so if you come to the end of your life, and you're, you're dead, and you're standing before God at the judgment, and you have never repented of your sins, you've never trusted Christ to be your Savior, then you are still in Adam. Adam is still your representative. You've never changed from Adam to a different representative. And so if you're in Adam, then you're punished in hell forever. But that verse in 1 Corinthians goes on to say, for in Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. 
And so you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And so in Christ, what that means is simply to have believed the gospel, repented of your sins, and you're trusting Jesus Christ to be your Savior. That's what it means to be in Christ. And so in Christ, you're saved forever and ever, and you go to heaven. And so that's why we say that in the Bible, God has really only dealt with two people. You're either, you either have Adam as your representative, or you have Jesus as your representative. And those are the only two people that can represent you. You can't represent yourself because you can't pay for your sins. You, you're in Adam, and you, you broke the law in Adam, or you trust that Jesus represented you, and Jesus obeyed all of God's law and never sinned. And so God views you in Adam, and that's what we call imputed righteousness. That's another lesson for another time. But we're coming now to an outline of all the different kinds of covenants. So if you take the very first handout, the one that says covenant theology at the top, at the very, very end, at the bottom of page three, it lists six different covenants that God made. And so you see the Adamic covenant, so that's a covenant with Adam, the Noachian, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and then number six is what we call Jeremiah's new covenant. And so today we're going to start with this one called the Adamic covenant, God's covenant with Adam. Now that was kind of the covenant of works, but it's not. We're, we're, we're finished with the covenant of works. That was in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. This covenant, the Adamic covenant, is the first mention in the Bible of what we're calling now the covenant of grace. So if you remember what we were talking about, there's a covenant of works, and then there's the covenant of mercy, and then the covenant of mercy is divided into two parts, not two different things, but two ways of manifesting the same thing. The covenant of redemption is the covenant that's inside the Trinity. God the Father elected those that he would save. God the Son promised to do the work of saving them. And God the Holy Spirit promised to do the work of applying that salvation to all those that the Father chose to save. That's the covenant of redemption. Well, the covenant of grace is how God communicated what he was going to do to mankind. And so um, now we're on the second page. So put the first one away, second page, the second piece of paper, the one that at the very top says the covenants through Scripture. So we're going to go through each of these. Now, really all this is the covenant of grace. And with the Adamic covenant, we're given all the information, but we're given all that information in a way that's kind of in code. Maybe that's weird to say it that way, but it's kind of coded. It's, a, it's like a coded message. All the information is there, but all the information is really not very understandable yet. We need more information to understand. And so once we go through Scripture and we get more information, then we can look back at Genesis 3.15 and say, oh, that's what he meant. And it, it helps us with our understanding. So this is how we're going to deal with this. So we'll start with this Adamic covenant, Genesis 3.15. So let's read it together. 
It says, well, not together. I'm going to read it. You listen. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity. What does the word enmity mean? Does anybody know? What? Okay, hatred. That works. What's another word? Friction. An enemy, hostility, adversity. All these are bad things, right? You don't want to have friction or hostility. You don't want anybody to be your enemy. You don't want adversity. You don't want conflict, okay? You don't want this constant disagreement. And so that's what enmity is. So that's what God says. I'm going to put this forever disagreement, this ever, forever and ever, there's going to be friction, there's going to be hostility, there's, there's always going to be problems between thee and the woman. Now, who is the thee? Hello? The serpent, he's talking to the serpent, but really we're talking about Satan, okay? So God is talking to Satan when he says this. I'm going to forever, there's going to be hostility and disagreement between the devil and the woman. And between the devil's seed and the woman's seed. So what is that talking about? What is, what is a woman's seed? What? Posterity. So let's use a word that, children, right. The, the, the woman's children. So, so who, are, who are the children of Eve? Raise your hand if you're a child of Eve. Okay, good job. You've all listened to Chronicles of Narnia, so we're good. Okay, so we're all children of Eve, right? So there's going to be this constant battle, this constant struggle between the devil and everybody that lives on the earth, okay? It, the, dev- the seed of the woman, that's what the it is referring to, that seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the devil, and the devil will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Okay. So, now, when I said who is the seed of the woman, we all raise our hand, we're all children that come from Eve. We all descend from her, eventually, you know, somehow. We all trace our ancestry all the way back, and we get to Eve. Now, a couple things that are interesting to note here when we look at Genesis 3.15 is that as you read through the Bible, and we've talked about this in our Sunday school classes before, as you read through the Bible, God created Adam, he told Adam, you need of all these trees, don't eat from this one, in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die, name all the animals, and there wasn't, a, there wasn't found a helper meat for Adam, so Adam went into a deep sleep, and God took a rib, fashioned the woman, brought the woman to the man, and he said, wow, this is a woman. I'm going to call her woman because she's going to be the mother of all living. And the next thing we read is the fall. And so we've talked about this before in, in our Sunday school classes, how long, how much time went by between Eve being created and the fall. Without getting too technical or, or too specific here, it, and one of our Creation Ministries guys uh, mentioned this the last time they were here too. 
we have very, 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 very good reason to believe, all the logical sense in the world to believe, that because Eve was perfect woman and Adam perfect man, therefore with perfect capabilities of reproduction, and Cain was conceived after the fall, then whatever time passed was less than a woman's cycle. It has to be inside that window. My opinion, this is purely my opinion, as you read the tenor of Scripture, the cadence of Scripture of what's going on, um, I'm within under a week, right? I'm within a couple days, and there's the fall, right? I don't know the, the, the cycle thing, to me, has to make sense with perfect reproduction. Cain being the first conceived human, um, she had to have conceived after the fall um, because she was promised, one of her punishments was promised um, labor travail in childbirth, and so she hadn't had a child yet. And so you're under 28 days, right? So somewhere in there. Um, but the point that I make of all that is that when Adam and Eve sinned, God did not wait at all before he came to them. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, what did he do? What did they do? Somebody tell me. They went and hid themselves, right? So they're hiding in the bushes, and they try to sew these fig leaves together. That's not working very well. But God comes immediately and says, what have you done? And there's the blame shifting and all the rest of it. But then, right then, God says, I'm going to provide a way of salvation. I'm going to provide you with a redeemer. And so here's this covenant that he enters into with men. And so we learn in this covenant, the points that I have on your outline there, that the seed of the woman is going to be at war with Satan. Um, this redeemer, I'm sorry, this redeemer will be at war with Satan. This redeemer is going to be the seed of a woman. And this redeemer is going to bruise the serpent's head. Okay, so the seed of the woman. Now, I said just a moment ago, who, are the, who is the seed of the woman? Who are the children of Eve? We all raised our hand. Well, there's a sense in which, yes, that's true. But this verse is pointing our attention more specifically to one certain individual, one person. And so look at Genesis 4 in your Bible. And Genesis 4, verse 1, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. And Eve said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. What does the ESV say, Kristen? With the help of the Lord? Okay. So, the, the, a pedantic translation of the Hebrew says, I have gotten a man, comma, the Lord. Okay. So, many commentators, many, many Bible scholars look at that and look at the Hebrew, and it seems as if when Eve bore Cain, her exclamation in the birth of Cain was, I have gotten a man, the Lord. 
this one that was promised, this seed, this one that was promised to be our Redeemer, here he is. Well, was Cain the Redeemer? No. Because Cain grew up and he proved himself to be quite the rascal because what did he do? He killed his brother, right? So Cain is not this one that we're looking for. Now, Cain was a seed of the woman, but not the promised one, not the one that matters. And so we, we learn here that this Redeemer, this one that will save us from our sins, is going to be the seed of the woman. Isaiah tells us more about that later, that this seed of the woman is going to be born of a virgin. So a woman who doesn't have a husband to have a baby. So Isaiah was not the first one to know that, but Isaiah was the first one to write that down. And so that's why we read in Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Right? So God is here with us. That's who this Redeemer is going to be. A seed of the woman, but born of a virgin woman, is going to bear this one who is God with us. And then we come to the book of Matthew, and part of the Christmas story, and Matthew proves what Isaiah is talking about. And then we learn from this Adamic covenant that this one that's going to be the Redeemer is going to bruise the serpent's head. Now, the word bruise there is a word that can also mean crush or destroy. And so that is what Jesus did on the cross. He destroyed the works of the devil. That's one of the things that Jesus said was one of his purposes in coming. Jesus Christ was made manifest in order to destroy the works of the devil. And so Jesus is the one that's the fulfillment of what God promised in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. So you read that whole story about the Adamic covenant, you read all that, and then you come to Genesis chapter 5. So let's look over at Genesis chapter 5. And before we start reading here, let's figure out some things. So who is, I want somebody in Mr. Boggus' class to answer this. Who was Adam and Eve's first child? Cain. Who was his second child? Abel. And then Cain killed Abel. And then they had a third child. What was his name? Who said that? Seth. Okay. So let's look at Genesis 5. You go through Genesis 5, and you have verse 6, and Seth lived an hundred and five years, and begat, what does beget mean? Somebody in Mr. Bogus's <laughs> class. What does it mean to beget? Seth did not give birth, man. He had a child. Had a child, right. So he begat, he, he produced, he had a child named Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Verse 9, and Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. 
and Enos lived after he begat Canaan. And so anyway, we keep going through Genesis chapter 5, and it's just telling about all these kids. Why do we need to know who all of Seth's kids were? What difference does it make? Well, when we understand covenant theology, it makes a ton of difference. Because we go through Seth, and we see all these people, all these people, all these people, all these people, and then you come down to verse number um, 28, and you eventually come all the way down to this man named Lamech. Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son, and he called his name what? Noah. Now, Noah is kind of an important person in the Bible, right? So he begat Noah. And so then we come to verse, I'm sorry, to chapter 6, and we learn that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What happened while Noah was alive? This massive flood, and how many people were alive after the flood was over? Eight. That's it. Just eight people. It's all that's left. But they're all the, they're all the descendants of who? Of Cain? No. Of Abel? No. Of Seth, right? They're all Seth's descendants. And so God is telling us in the Bible, I've made this promise about a Redeemer, not forgotten it, and I'm going to make sure you know and so that you can trace it back and prove that I'm keeping my word. And so here we get to Noah. And so in Genesis 9, let's look at Genesis 9, we come to what we call the Noahic covenant, God's covenant with Noah. Genesis 9 and verse 27. Now again, you know, I, I said earlier that what God said to Adam was kind of code. Well, here we kind of have more code. We have to understand what is God saying. So he says in verse 27, God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Whoa. So what does that mean? Well, I'm, we're calling this the Noahic covenant, God's covenant with Noah, God's promise to Noah that he's going to enlarge Japheth. God will enlarge Japheth. God, God will dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. If you go back to verse 9 of Genesis 9, look at what God said. God said to Noah, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed, there's that word again, your seed after you. And so God is making this this renewal of this covenant. It's not new. It's just a reminder to humanity, because right now they're the only people on the earth, these eight people. Everybody else has died in the flood. God made God renewed this covenant promise, and so we come to verse 27, and that really is the important part of it. And so what do we learn here? So if you look at your notes, A, this Redeemer is going to be in the line of Shem. So Noah had how many sons? Three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And so Japheth is going to be enlarged, 
But the important part here for us to understand is when God said that he will dwell in the tents of Shem. So, A, in your notes, the Redeemer will be in the line of Shem. B, the Redeemer will be God in the flesh. Now, how do we understand that? How do we know that? Well, back then, people did live in tents. So, how many of you have been camping and slept in a tent overnight? Right, you've been camping and slept in a tent overnight. That's not what this is talking about. It's using poetic language. It's using figurative language. Not of a tent that you would spend the night in, but it's talking about your skin, like your, your body, like your, your skin that you can see. It's using that figuratively to speak of a tent. A tent is something you live in, and so we, you live in your skin. And that's the idea that God is communicating. That's why I say it's, it's kind of code. It's not code, but it's kind of code language. And so this Redeemer is going to be from the line of Shem, and the Redeemer is going to be God in the flesh. Now, we learn that in Genesis 9.27. We learn more specifically these truths other places in Scripture. So it's not only here. So, for example, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, on and on and on, down to verse 14. And the Word was what? Made flesh and dwelt among us. And so there's more places in the Bible that we learn this. It's not only in this code kind of secret language that we learn that God's going to be in flesh, but the Bible proves that in other places. But something happens here that is kind of a problem. There's only three people alive. You come to Genesis chapter 10 and just look at the page of Genesis chapter 10, and you have begetting and begetting and begetting and begetting. And so in verse 2, it tells us about the sons of Japheth. Okay, and here's all his kids. On and on and on it goes. Verse 6, and the sons of Ham. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And then verse 21 unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. And it goes on and on with all them. Okay? Then we come to chapter 11, and something happens. Who knows what happens in Genesis chapter 11? The Tower of Babel. So at the Tower of Babel, all the people on the earth now, and now there's, I don't know, millions. I mean, there are how many people? There's bunches and bunches and bunches of people on the earth and they decide we are going to band together and we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to make a name that is above every other name. We're going to be important. We're going to reach all the way to heaven with our name. And God says, well, actually, you're not going to do that. And so he comes and he confuses their language. And now you have all these different groups of people that can't understand each other, and they're looking for people that they can understand, and hey, I can understand you, and you can understand me, so let's kind of go over here, and then somebody else finds us that can understand, and 
So you've got a thousand people over there and a thousand people over there and a thousand people over there and a thousand people over there, all speaking all these different languages. Well, where in the world is this Redeemer now? Where, where is the Redeemer going to come from? And so look at Genesis 11, verse 10. This is interesting because God does not point our attention to Japheth anymore. He doesn't point our attention to the, to the descendants of Ham anymore. In chapter 10, verse 11, he says, these are the generations of Shem. And so now, remember, God was going to dwell in the tents of Shem. And so now he's, he's confused the languages. People have scattered all over the earth, all separate from one another. But I still have my eye on Shem. I still know where he is. I still know where his descendants are. Of all this confusion, God is saying, I'm not confused. Here's Shem. Here's who his people are. And you come all the way down to verse 27. Sorry. Verse 25. And Nahor lived after he begat Terah and 119 years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and begat, who's that? Abraham. So here's the next major player. And here's the renewal of the covenant again. And here's Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And so by the time we get to Abraham, there has already gone by 1,818 years of human history. From Adam, when God created Adam, until Abraham, you have 1,818 years of world history in 11 chapters. And God still knows where the Redeemer is. He's promised it. He's traced it. And now we come to Abraham. And the important verse, we'll end here, but the important verse is chapter 12 and verse number 3. Well, let's read from verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so next week we'll come back here and we'll pick up with this Abrahamic covenant and, and finish this out next week. But we're, we're learning that God is keeping this covenant promise that he made at the beginning, this covenant of grace to provide a redeemer. And he's told us who this redeemer is, and we're tracing through the scriptures at every turn to know who the redeemer is. We all know it's Jesus. But the point of this is it proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that Jesus is the only one that could be the fulfillment of what God promised to Adam and Eve in the garden of a Redeemer. And the Bible traces this all the way through. And so this is what we call covenant theology. And so next week we'll pick up here with Abraham and finish this out. But let's close in prayer now. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises You are one who is trustworthy and right and holy, and we pray for grace to trust you more. We 
pray that we would all be in Christ. We pray for everyone gathered here today, that if there are any that are still in Adam, that you by your Spirit would show them what that means and teach them by your Spirit what it means to be in Christ, to trust Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of their soul. Pray that you'll bless our worship time here to follow and bless Pastor Kimbrough as he preaches. Bless us in our singing and the hearing and reading of Scripture, our praying together, and even our fellowship after we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.